coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Sean Witt, the Audience Development Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide non-for-profit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers democracy and criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, he dived into the topic of ranked choice voting and whether the system could be implemented in Oklahoma sometime soon. Keaton, how does the ranked choice voting work? So with ranked choice voting, voters rate candidates by preference instead of just choosing one name on a ballot. So say you have five candidates for an office, uh, you'll rank those candidates one through five. And then when the results are tallied, uh, if a single candidate doesn't win an outright majority, uh, there's an elimination process where the candidate with the least first place votes is uh, eliminated. And then those uh, second, third, you know, subsequent votes are are tallied up to the remaining candidates. And by an elimination process, someone ends up winning a majority and then they're declared the winner. Hmm. How many other states and municipalities have adopted this type of system? Uh, just two states, Maine and Alaska. Alaska passed a ballot initiative implementing ranked choice voting a few years ago. Um, so just two states, but it's becoming more common uh, at the local municipal level. Uh, we've seen places like New York City, San Francisco, um, some some municipalities in, in states like Utah adopt it. Uh, I believe the the number of local municipalities is is somewhere in the the fifty to sixty range that have uh, adopted it. So uh, it's becoming more common at that level. Uh, it's picked up some momentum in in the past couple of years. What are those uh, in favor of ranked choice voting? What are they? What are their arguments? They argue that it's effective in uh, one moderating campaigns uh, and two uh, making campaigns more issue-based, um, kind of the way it's designed. They argue that if a candidate knows that they're not going to get a first choice vote from from a certain demographic, they're going to try to get the second place vote. Um, so it, they argue that they'll be campaigning on, you know, this is my policy position and in trying to put forward, you know, that they're a likable, sensible, solutions-oriented kind of person, um, as opposed to kind of the the back and forth um, negative campaigning that we've seen in some races. So there's always a flip side to the coin. What? Why are some people opposed to this? Yeah. So the arguments against it are that uh, it's the system itself is is more complex than than we're used to. Uh, just with the the single race, um, you know, that's how we've done it for a very long time. Um, of course, this system has been used uh, overseas and in different countries, but. Uh, here in Oklahoma is certainly something new. Um, so I think there's there are concerns about uh, kind of the complexity of it that it might take longer for, for voters to cast their ballots, for those ballots to be counted, um, and sort of that, you know, just an entirely new system. Um, there are questions about that. And there are also questions about uh, whether or not the, the process, the counting system itself uh, is fair compared to what we're using now. So what would it take for this to, to happen here in Oklahoma? In Oklahoma, uh, for starters, it would require the state to purchase new voting machines. Uh, I was at an interim study on this topic last week, and the state election board secretary, Paul Zierich, testified that uh, the state's voting machines right now can't accommodate ranked choice voting. Um, 
the state is set to to need new machines in in the relatively near future. Uh, they purchased the current fleet around 2012, um, so they're getting a little dated. Uh, but as of now, those machines um, can accommodate rank choice ballots, uh, and also just the so there's that element of it as well as the uh, public education information campaign that re- would be required of election officials and the the general public. So combining those two elements, uh, you're looking at at a cost of you know upwards of ten million dollars. Have you got a uh, you got a sense of where the Republican Party stands with this since they're the supermajority? So it appears that because of those those reasons I outlined the the machines not accommodating the the complexities of it. Um, also nationally, uh, there's been, uh, we've seen efforts in other states of, of Republican legislatures and, and states that have a Republican supermajority to, to ban ranked choice voting um, at the municipal level. Um, so it seems, it appears uh, that the tide in Oklahoma would meet, lead more towards the direction of uh, that, that sort of ban. Um, there's a, a model proposal from the uh, the Alec group that uh, proposes this banning ranked choice voting at the municipal level. We've seen states like Florida and Montana ban it. Um, so that that appears to be where uh, the tide is likely headed in Oklahoma. Uh, of course, we'll know more uh, when the legislative session convenes uh, beginning in February. So is this something that could possibly appear on a ballot initiative? It it is that that sort of issue. Um, of course, that requires a lot of organizing and money and effort. Um, but you know, based on some conversations I've had, this is the sort of subject that uh, could appear on a ballot initiative, whether um, it's implementing ranked choice voting or if if there were to be a uh, some sort of ban or restriction on ranked choice voting passed, uh, a referendum on that. Um, would certainly be something to watch over the next several years. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of Keaton's coverage on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for his free weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest story unpacks the fear and confusion caused by the state abortion restrictions and the impact it's having on pregnant Oklahomans. Whitney, you examine this problem through the lens of one woman's story. Tell us about Megan Hoffman. Well, Megan Hoffman is an Oklahoma City resident, and she was pregnant with her her second child um, late last year in 2022. Uh, about 14 weeks into her pregnancy, the doctors discovered that she had a condition that that caused blood clots. So she had a lot of bleeding and was at risk of some pretty severe complications, even uh, going into shock, organ failure, you know, potentially dying if if they they, you know, were complicated enough. So she was effectively put on bed rest at that point. She was getting weekly ultrasounds to check on the fetus that at that point was still healthy, according to doctors. Around 20 weeks, so she'd been on bed rest, unable to, you know, work and take care of her toddler for several weeks at this point, they did what's called an anatomy scan. And basically that allows doctors to see a lot more detail of the fetus, really for the first time in her pregnancy, 
At that appointment, they discovered that her fetus was not developing a brain or a skull. Her pregnancy was non-viable. That unborn baby was not going to survive. And Megan was still at risk. So she basically had two options. She could carry, you know, to term, assuming no other complications arose and have what would be a a life-threatening laboring process so that she could birth an unborn child that would not survive, or she could terminate the pregnancy and save some of that risk to her own life. So why couldn't she get an abortion here in Oklahoma? Well, most of our listeners know that last summer, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which upheld a constitutional right to abortion. And when that happened, Oklahoma passed laws that made performing an abortion a felony that came with prison time and a civil offense with exemptions for medical emergencies only. So we also had what was called a trigger law here in Oklahoma, which basically means when Roe v. Wade was repealed, a written law from 1910 here in Oklahoma went back into effect. At one point, we had five overlapping and conflicting laws that basically banned abortion statewide with a couple of exceptions. You mentioned there were exceptions for emergencies. If if Megan's pregnancy wasn't viable and she was at risk from some pretty severe medical complications, why does she not qualify for this emergency case? Well, that's a great question. That's the question that Megan's been asking. That's the question that we asked um, and tried to answer for this story. So in many cases, the laws made exceptions for what was called a medical emergency. And that term created a sort of paralysis among physicians in hospitals and other, you know, medical providers as well, because to a lot of folks, that meant that the mother had to be, you know, on death's bed. Essentially, if we don't perform this procedure immediately, she will die. Though the lawmakers who created some of this legislation, I spoke to one of them and he said, actually, he felt like there was a lot more wiggle room in that terminology. So again, very conflicting and confusing words. People really didn't know what they could and couldn't do. And, you know, physicians were afraid of of going to jail, losing their license, you know, being fined if they were taken to civil court some pretty big consequences if they misread that law and misinterpreted it. So that that phrase, medical emergency, that actually became the focus of two Supreme Court rulings earlier this year because of how confusing it was. What did the Supreme Court find in those cases? Well, they ended up striking down two laws that used that term medical emergency, which essentially affirmed the right to terminate a pregnancy if the mother's life was at risk. So that term that they used in the Supreme Court was to preserve the life of the mother. So talking to a law professor, a lawmaker, and a physician, they all said that language is more broad. Essentially, it gives a little more autonomy back to doctors, back to patients. Uh, Representative Jim Olson, he introduced one of those laws that was struck down. He said he's going to propose that exact same law again next year using the new terminology. So the exemption for the abortion ban would be to preserve the life of the mother rather than only in a medical emergency. So what does that mean for pregnant patients in Oklahoma? Could Megan get an abortion here after those changes? 
Well, it really depends on who you ask. Unfortunately, um, it's still not completely clear. So I spoke to Dr. Dana Stone. She's an obstetrician in Oklahoma City. And she said that the decision is a step in the right direction. She believes this does provide some more autonomy to medical providers to make these decisions. However, she's worried that that paralysis I talked about, um, you know, doctors fearing losing their license or being sued or, you know, misinterpreting the law is still going to be an issue. It's really heavy in medical settings now. And she's saying she doesn't think this ruling is going to lift that paralysis, at least not in a lot of cases. So physicians and attorneys are still really unsure where that line is when it comes to abortion care. Uh, the attorney general here in Oklahoma is working on some guidelines that could help clear up some of that confusion, uh, but we don't know when those guidelines are going to be available yet, so we're still waiting on that. Uh, many physicians are going to continue to say no to abortion care as a precaution, basically forcing pregnant Oklahomans like Megan, for instance, to go out of state. When I talked to Representative Olson about Megan's situation and asked him whether he thought her abortion would be legal under this new language, he said he did think someone like Megan could get an abortion in Oklahoma based on her situation. But he also said he thought Megan might have been able to get one under the original language of a medical emergency that her doctor probably could have argued for that and one, the problem is the doctor would have to argue, right? Questions would arise and a lot of doctors are just not willing to take that risk. So you had mentioned that, that Megan ended up going out of state. What exactly did she do? That's right. Well, Megan had to find a physician in another state to provide the abortion that she needed. Similar bans in Texas and Arkansas and total bans in Missouri made those states out of reach for her. And in Kansas, limited abortions... Um, she was only able to get an abortion up to 22 weeks in Kansas. And at that point, she was at 21 weeks. Kansas physicians were booked out at least two weeks. So that was out of the question as well. She did end up finding a hospital in New Mexico that was willing to, uh, willing and able to get her in in time. Another law in Oklahoma, though, prohibited what's called aiding and abetting an abortion. Essentially, you can't help someone get an abortion. So her physician and medical team couldn't provide, you know, notes and documents to the New Mexico hospital. They couldn't do a phone consultation as they would with some other types of procedures. So Megan had to do all of that legwork on her own and said, you know, that that really added to all of the stress and strain that she was already under in this, you know, life-risking situation that she was in. She ended up driving 600 miles to get the procedure, said she spent about $6,000 between medical costs and travel expenses to get that care she needed. She said, you know, this is one of the most difficult experiences of her life, and she felt like Oklahoma really kicked her when she was down. Truly heart-wrenching story. Thanks, Whitney. You can read all of Whitney's coverage of the state's abortion law impacts, as well as her work on Oklahoma's most vulnerable people on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. He's been looking into debt collection lawsuits in Oklahoma and what they mean for low-income Oklahomans across the state. Lionel, what's the story? 
Debt collection lawsuits are the most common civil litigation in the state right now. They have been for a few years. Um, and looking into some of the data, Black, Latino, Native American Oklahomans are the ones being sued the most. What jump-started you on this reporting? There's a, an organization called the Oklahoma Access to Justice Foundation, and its whole goal is to study the state's courts and um, basically review the accessibility of these courts for low-income Oklahomans. And um, I got an email from their director with a report kind of breaking down what debt collection lawsuits look like from 2018 to 2022. It focuses on the quantity of the cases and inequities within the court system and processes. Um, I wanted to know the who behind the numbers, and that's kind of how I started reporting on this. You mentioned debt collection cases are the most common type of civil court litigation in the state. What kind of numbers are we talking about? You know, the study looks at debt collection cases, like I said, from 2018 to 2022. And within that time period, more than 340,000 cases were filed. Um, the average per year is about 68,000. And that's across the state. Hmm. What does the report say about how debt collection lawsuits disproportionately affect people of color? Not much. Besides, people of color are the ones that are kind of being filed against the most. The authors use data published by an or another organization called the Urban Institute, um, which does kind of um, financial research on Americans kind of across the board and across the state. And, you know, they determined by county um, who is being filed against the most in these, in these lawsuits. And it's interesting because their data is sourced, um, according to their technical documentation, from an unnamed major credit bureau that only distinguishes between white and people of color. Uh, I wanted to get a better picture of that. So what I did is I took the Urban Institute data and looked at the most recent census data and identified where um, the Urban Institute data was pointing out that people of color were filed against the most, and then use the census data to distinguish individual races and ethnicities. And that's how I reached the conclusion that Black, Latino, and Native American Oklahomans are the ones that are um, in these cases the most, or defendants of these cases the most. What does the court process look like for these debtors? There are two avenues to dealing with uh, debt collection cases. There's small claims, which is for any amount under $10,000. And that's a very expedited process. Um, generally, the plaintiff shows up, the person that's suing someone, and the defendant shows up, the debtor. And usually the plaintiff has an attorney of some sort and they hash out a kind of payment plan or person refuses to pay and they get their wages garnished. Um, and then there's the district court side of it, right? Which is kind of the more normal and more formalized court process where um, it's far more likely for the plaintiffs to actually have an attorney. Um, some defendants have attorneys and they sit in front of a judge and kind of dish out these arguments. What does this mean for all these low-income debtors and their communities? As the Access to Justice report points out, you know, getting a default judgment, which is usually what happens in these cases. A lot of people don't show up to their court cases, um, mainly because they don't know, you know, what happens if they don't? Um, a lot of people have work and other obligations, and and a lot of these cases are um, their hearing dates are predetermined. So they get a default judgment, and then they get their wages garnished up to twenty five percent of their check every two weeks or however often they get paid. And then if that's not enough, or if if that doesn't work, if they can't find out where they you know where their occupation is, 
um, a lot of times they get their banks levied. So their bank accounts will get cleared to cover however much of the debt their bank account can cover. Um, that leads to a world of other issues for these debtors. And, you know, it, it can mean that they miss out on rent payments um, or if they have a mortgage, they can't make their mortgage. If they have cars, they can't pay their car loans. And those things get defaulted as well, repossessed, foreclosed. And um, a lot of times the only option is filing for bankruptcy, which is a, you know, along with all those other things, destroys your credit. And so people are kind of ruined financially in the long term. Wow. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read all of Lionel's coverage on the debt collection lawsuit, along with his coverage on race and equity at OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we are grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Sean Witt. Thanks for listening.